Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester, and to take us on a journey through the stories of laser cooling, here's our guest. My name's Chad Orzel. I'm a professor at Union College in Schenectady, New York, and uh, I'm also, for my sins, the chair of the department at the moment. The discovery of laser cooling has transformed the field of atomic physics and led to a number of Nobel Prize wins and real-world applications through atomic clocks, GPS technology, and now laying the foundations for quantum computing. In addition to his research in atomic, molecular, and optical physics, Chad has been an accomplished science communicator. He's a prolific blogger and author of several books, including How to Teach Quantum Physics to Your Dog. Chad has been exploring the story so far of laser cooling with his trilogy of features for Physics World. At the time that this podcast goes live, the first two articles are already available on physicsworld.com, entitled Cold and Colder. And the final instalment, called Coldest, will be available from early January 2024. Yeah, laser cooling, right? It, it sounds like something that is just, you know, air conditioning the laser lab or, or something like that. Uh, but in fact, it's, it's a wonderfully counterintuitive area of physics, which is you can make a gas of atoms cold by shining laser light on it. That seems like the exact opposite of what you expect, right? You think lasers shining on things, you think things getting really hot, things exploding, you know, the Death Star or whatever. Um, but in fact, uh, what you can do is you can use carefully arranged laser beams to slow down the motion of atoms from something approximately the speed of sound uh, for a gas of atoms at room temperature down to a speed of a few centimeters per second of a, a rapidly moving insect. Um, and you can do that uh, by using forces exerted by laser light. So just shining light on a gas of atoms can make those atoms move slowly. Slower motion is equal to lower temperature. And so lasers can cool a gas of atoms. You've done it now because you mentioned Star Wars. But why is it then that if we fire a laser at the Death Star then it blows up. I mean, maybe unsatisfactorily and it's able to be rebuilt and everything, but why doesn't it just cool it down? Uh, what happens if you're talking about something like a, a macroscopic object, right, and you shine light on it, it'll absorb light over a very broad range of frequencies and it picks up the energy that was carried by the light. And then that energy goes into vibrations of, of things. It heats up the, the system and it gets, gets transferred there. Um, and so that, that energy just comes in and, and doesn't uh, go back out uh, in, in the same form. It, it changes from energy carried by the light to energy in the, the kinetic energy of, of the atoms and molecules making a thing up. And, you know, if you, have enough, if you dump enough energy in, it'll, it'll heat up significantly and, and blow up. Um, if you're talking about uh, atoms, though, atoms are very simple and they'll only absorb and emit very particular frequencies of light. And there's nowhere for that energy to go once it's in the atom. Right. The atom uh, has a photon of light come in. It gets some amount of energy. It puts that energy into the orbit of the electron around the nucleus. Uh, and then sometime later, it will re-emit that, that light uh, at more or less the same frequency that it, that it came in. There's nowhere for that energy to go, generally speaking. So uh, whatever comes in goes right back out uh, in terms of the internal states of the atom. 
Now, the light can also affect the external states of the atom, right? So because the photon carries uh, energy, the photon is, you can think of it as a little bundle of some, some very tiny amount of energy carried in the light. By Einstein's relativity, that also means it has some momentum. And when the atom absorbs the, the photon, that momentum gets trans transferred to the atom as well. So the energy mostly goes into um, increasing the, the energy of the electron in its orbit, but this momentum goes into how the, the nucleus, how the entire atom is moving. Now, if an atom is sitting still and absorbs a photon, it'll heat up exactly like you expect it to because you know it's just sitting there. It gets a kick from this uh, photon coming in, and that sends it off moving in some direction. But if the atom is moving toward the laser, when it absorbs the, the photon, it will slow down. It gets that same kick that momentum is transferred, but that momentum acts to reduce the speed at which the atom is moving, which you know slows down its motion and slow equals cold. The reason we want atoms to be moving more slowly is, is the primary way we know about what's going on inside of atoms is doing spectroscopy, looking at the colors of the light that they absorb and emit. And the colors of the light that they absorb and emit are shifted by the Doppler effect, right? The Doppler effect is this change in the frequency of waves from a moving source that's most familiar in the case of, of sound waves, right? If you if you watch, you know, you know any any toddler can tell you, right? The noise that a, that a race car makes, right, is that noise as as it goes by. That's the Doppler effect. As the car is coming toward you, the engine sound is shifted to a higher frequency. And uh, as it goes away from you, it's shifted to a lower frequency and it changes very rapidly from one to the other as it goes by. Um, that Doppler effect uh, also happens with light. So an atom that's moving at something like the speed of sound has a fairly substantial Doppler effect, uh, changing the frequency of the light that it absorbs and the light that it emits, which limits our ability to, to study the properties of, of atoms. If we can reduce that velocity, if we can take it from the speed of sound down to, you know, centimeter per second speeds, then we can do incredibly precise spectroscopy of the, the states of, of these atoms because they're moving so slowly and the Doppler shift is essentially eliminated. Uh, this is most important in the case of atomic clocks, uh, which are really in some sense, light clocks, right? Uh, the definition of a second is it's 9,192,631,770 oscillations of the microwaves that are absorbed and emitted in making a transition between two states in a cesium atom, right? Our ability to measure that is constrained by how fast those cesium atoms are moving. So the very best atomic clocks made today use cesium atoms that are laser cooled to a small fraction of a degree above absolute zero, speeds of centimeters per second, at which point we can measure that, that frequency with amazing precision. Uh, the best uh, atomic clocks using laser cooled atoms are good to around a, a second in a billion years, right? If you had two of these clocks, uh, two identical clocks running next to each other, it would take a billion years, give or take, for them to drift apart by, by one second. Um, and we can do even better than that with experimental clocks that are, that are good to, you know, a second in more than the age of the universe. Uh, so, uh, and these, again, use these, these laser-cooled atoms to make these incredibly precise spectroscopic measurements. Okay, but why does that matter to people on the street? It turns out to matter enormously to people on the street who want to know where they're going. 
uh, because the the basis of uh, a lot of modern navigation, right? If you use one of those the Google Maps or Apple Maps, whatever whatever app you use to navigate, um, those are relying on the global positioning system, which is a set of atomic clocks on satellites up in space that are broadcasting the time. And your, your receiver uh, detects the time signal from several different satellites and uses that to determine how long it took the radio signal from the satellite to get to you, which tells you your distance, the distance between you and the satellite, um, which allows you to determine your position on the, the surface of the Earth if you know several of these, these travel times. Um, that allows you to determine your position, uh, but it's, your position is only as good as the, the clocks that you have. Uh, and light travels, at, it's the, the one case where uh, American units are superior. Light travels about one foot in a nanosecond. And uh, that, that means that if you want to know where you are on the Earth to within, say, a meter, you need the timing to within a little more than three nanoseconds. Um, and for that, you need atomic clocks. And the better the atomic clocks, the better the timing which means the better you can do with things like the global position. So how was all this discovered? You know, what, what were the beginnings of this as a science? The story of laser cooling really starts in the, the 1960s when people first, you know, invented lasers and, and started playing around with them. And, and uh, they noticed that, that you would see sort of uh, specks of dust sort of popping in and out of the beam. And it looked like they were kind of getting pushed around by the light. Uh, so a guy named Art Ashkin, uh, did some back of the envelope calculations and and worked out that you know you could actually use light to exert uh, fairly substantial forces on very small objects, um, and this had actually been measured before in the in the 30s. Uh, there's uh, a, a fabulous set of, of very early experiments uh, done that that demonstrated that you could use light to exert forces on atoms, that you could transfer this momentum from photons to to atoms and deflect them by a tiny amount. But nobody could really do anything with it until you, you had a laser, which allows you to throw, you know, an essentially infinite number of photons at, uh, at something. So um, Art Ashkin at Bell Labs started playing around with this and demonstrated that they could uh, use this, these forces from light to, to manipulate small uh, beads, basically, uh, and, and push them around uh, with these, these light forces. Um, which, you know, then it's a new way to, to manipulate microscopic objects. And, and they started doing this in the, the early to mid-1970s. Um, this gets uh, connected up to, to atoms, uh, thanks to, to two uh, people who are now at, at NIST in, in the U.S. Um, uh, one of them is, is Dave Wineland, uh, who is one of uh, four people who... who um, were part of the original proposals of, of doing uh, laser cooling of atoms. Uh, it's, it's Dave Wineland and his, his PhD advisor, Hans Demelt, wrote a paper on um, using these light forces to manipulate specifically atoms. Uh, and the other is uh, Art Shalow and uh, Ted Hench. Uh, Theodore Hench won the Nobel Prize for uh, work on, on um, high-frequency lasers. Uh, they also had a, a proposal, both of these in a, around 1975, looking at the idea of using these forces specifically to cool atoms and, and selectively slow the motion of atoms. Um, so in the, in the mid-1970s, uh, Wineland and Daymelt and uh, Shallow and Hench uh, come up with this, this idea of using these forces to slow down atoms. 
Uh, and then uh, Wineland went to the then the National Bureau of Standards, now NIST in Boulder, to uh, start doing these these experiments, uh, which was a, a side project to what he was actually hired to do. But they they brought him in with the promise that he could do some of his own thing. Uh, and uh Around the same time, a few years later, Bill Phillips um, ended up going to uh, the the other National Bureau of Standards lab in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and he also was hired with the promise that he could uh, do some side projects of, of his own choosing and decided to pursue laser cooling. Wineland did uh, laser cooling of, of ions because that's what he had been working on uh, for his thesis is, is trapping these uh, charged particles. And so he looked at, at ways to use uh, lasers to, to slow the motion of those. Uh, Phillips uh, looked at, at doing neutral atoms. He had been studying uh, properties of atoms as part of, uh, of his thesis. And so he said, you know, we could do the same thing with, with uh, neutral atoms. And there are pros and cons to, to both of those. But um, that's really where the, the, the study of this, uh, applying this to atoms, really really gets going. You mentioned the Nobel Prize, and it's an area of physics that has actually won quite a few of them. There are a few stories that you share in your three features. Do you have a particular favourite? Like my, my favorite story relating to Nobel Prizes in this is a story that, that, that Bob Drollinger told. He was a colleague of, of Dave Wineland's at, uh, at NIST in, in Boulder, and uh, they were working together on this. They had uh, Wineland was doing the vacuum system and uh, the ion trap to, to you know, initially hold the, the sample of atoms. And Drollinger was the laser guy. He was he put together a laser system that could could do the extremely inconvenient frequencies that you needed to, to do to, to cool these these trapped ions. Um, and so they were uh, they were working on this and they, they set up their first experiment and uh, they're they're in the lab late at night because these first experiments always happen late at night. And uh, they they turn on the laser and they saw exactly the signal they expected. They had this sample of trapped ions. They could measure the temperature by how much electrical noise these these ions were making. And they turned on the laser. The noise level went down, which told you the the ions were getting cold and worked exactly as they expected, exactly where they expected it to be. Um, and so Drollinger says that they're in the lab. It's late at night. They've just done this. And he said, you know, like there's this wonderful feeling of excitement. They said, but I didn't know what we were going to do next. And so, you know, I said to Dave, what do we, you know, where do we go from here? And he said, he looked across the, the laser table at, at Wineland, who's lit only by the, the, the glow of the lasers. And he said this, this smile comes over his face and he says, Stockholm. No. <laughs> so because they knew right away that they had something that was that was just absolutely fantastic. But it took a while, didn't it, for them to actually win the prize? It took a while to to get the, the Nobel Prizes. Uh, the the first of the Nobel Prizes actually went to, to Phillips and Steve Chu and Claude Cohen Tanuji for laser cooling of, of neutrals. Um, Wineland. Uh, got uh, got the prize uh, several years later uh, for for his experiments with ions, uh, and the the ion experiments are really amazing because they can get down to to you know incredibly low temperatures and trapping these single ions that are now a platform for for quantum computing and really completely revolutionized that that whole field of of things. Okay, so we have quantum computers such as they are 
at the moment and such as they will be because of this? In part, yeah. One of the big things that, that uh, kicks off the field of, of quantum computing is it's it's around 1994, I think. There's uh, a paper by uh, Serac and Zoller uh, that it's a theoretical study, but they looked at the, the trapped ion system that Wineland and his, his team had built in Boulder, and they said, hey, you know, if you had several of these ions in a trap, uh, there's this uh, collective motion of the, the several ions back and forth that you can use to connect the states together. And you can actually do the operations you need to do to make a quantum computer with this system. And uh, the, the ability to laser cool these to the lowest possible energy state gives you just this unprecedented fidelity for, for this. And they can do all of these manipulations. The um, Serac and Zoller paper on this really gets people thinking very seriously about uh, about quantum computing, specifically in ions. And, and they start, Wineland and his group really start pursuing that that field. And that that's become one of the the, the best areas of of uh, quantum computing in terms of your, your ability to manipulate these these qubits and and read out the, the signal and all that. It's tempting to think of, you know, Nobel Prize winners of as getting all the science right, you know, from the get-go. But there are a couple of fun stories in your features about, you know, the, the experiments not necessarily going wrong. But could you just share a couple with me? Oh, yeah. There, there, there's, there's two different versions of that. There, there's... Uh... The uh, so there's there's one with uh, Wineland and, and Drollinger were doing the experiment. And they were they were using uh, magnesium ions, is what they were trying to trap. And you know the first time they they set it up, they've got this trapped ion signal. They can see that the ions are kind of hot from the amount of electrical noise that they're picking up. They turn on the laser, the ions get cold. It's great. Um, they do it the the next day and. Uh, they turn on the ions and the, the lasers get colder, but not as cold as they did the first time around. And they're like, oh, that's that's weird. And then they try it again and it doesn't work at all. And um, so they end up and nothing worked. And they uh, they end up tearing the whole system apart, rebuilding it from the ground up. Uh, Drollinger says he, he he's convinced that Wineland thought he had just completely screwed up the laser system because Dave... Uh, you know, had built the ion traps and knew what he was doing with the ion traps and knew that that was working uh, perfectly. Um, and so, but they rebuilt both systems completely. And uh, when they turned it back on, they had a, a much better laser system and they knew the laser was in exactly the right place and it still didn't work. And it turned out that they had used, they had used up all of the magnesium they, they, were, they had and were in fact, they had heated up the, the oven that produced the ions so much that they were boiling sodium out of the glass and they could trap sodium ions which are about the same mass as magnesium so it looked like they had ions in the trap uh but they were the completely the wrong element and so the lasers didn't affect them at all um and so it wasn't drollinger's fault with the laser system it was uh it was they've run out of magnesium and so they, they got more magnesium they put they reloaded the system and then it worked great from there there on um the other version of that is is uh phillips uh bill phillips and hal metcalf were doing uh magnetic trapping of sodium atoms. So they, they had a laser, they're slowing down a beam of sodium atoms, and then they would turn on this collection of magnetic fields that would trap the, the atoms. Uh, and, and then they, you know, they'd hold them there for a while and then, and then they you know, flash on some light and they would see that these atoms are sticking around for a very long time. And they were, uh, 
they they were working on this, and you know they they got a signal. They saw these 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 atoms trapped, and then uh, and then just nothing worked for a while, and and it, uh, it it wasn't working. And they said, you know, okay, this is you know uh, something's wrong here. We got to go think about this. So they went and they got. They got fast food. They turned everything off in the lab. They went out. They got a, a very late dinner at like McDonald's or someplace like that. Uh, and they came back, a, you know, an hour or so later and they turned everything on and they get this fabulous signal of trapped atoms. Uh, and they're like, you know, hooray. And then the signal slowly got worse over a couple hours. And what it turns out is uh, they were they were heating the system up. Uh, so they were laser cooling the atoms successfully, and they were they were getting them to the area. But the the to make the magnetic trap, they had to run so much current through the the coils that they were they were heating the whole system, and then the vacuum uh, system would degrade uh, to the point where they they uh, had all this stray background gas in there that would knock the the sodium atoms out of the trap, and they couldn't trap anything because the vacuum was terrible. Um, and so they, they figured that out and they got it, got it fixed up and they, they ended up, um, they ended up working through the night, getting this, this data and showing that they were, they were magnetically trapping these, these sodium atoms. And then, uh, the, the, the story they tell is that, uh, you know, they, they worked all night and they're like at six in the morning, they go to Bill's house and they root around in the refrigerator looking for something to eat. And they just end up eating ice cream. And so it's in the morning. Uh, Bill Phillips's wife comes down and, and her husband and Hal Metcalf are sitting in the, in the kitchen uh, eating ice cream. And she's like, what, what are you doing? It's six in the morning and that ice cream is for the kids. And they're like, no, 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 no. We had a good night. <laughs> so, you know, so they're celebrating that, you know, what, what turned into a Nobel Prize later on. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Chad Orzel so far. And just a reminder that he has written a three-part feature series for Physics World all about the history of laser cooling. In the first part of this conversation, Chad mentioned Stephen Chu, who shared the 1997 Nobel Prize with Bill Phillips and Claude Cohen-Tanuji. Not content with reaching this pinnacle of science, Chu also went on to serve as the US Secretary of Energy from 2009 to 2013, during Barack Obama's first presidential team. Perhaps part of Chu's suitability to politics is that he built a reputation as the guy who gets difficult experiments done. Yeah, so uh, so Steve Chu comes in. He was uh, a colleague of Art Ashkin's at, at Bell Labs. And, and Ashkin had this uh, idea of, of doing laser cooling and using... Uh, you know, did the first demonstrations of using light to push around microscopic objects, but he's using these like little glass beads and, and things like that uh, to, to push stuff around. And then they had the idea to do some of this with atoms, but he particularly wanted to do um, trapping uh, using only light. Right? And so using using just the forces from laser beams to trap atoms um, and, and cool them. And uh, that turns out to be a, a really tricky thing to do. Um, Ashkin and, and his colleague John Bjorkholm worked on this, and they did some some preliminary experiments, but they didn't really have the the setup to do it. And, and in fact, their bosses at Bell Labs started to tell them, you know, okay, this has been fun, but do do something else, right? Uh, stop stop working on this so much. But um, Chu uh, got transferred into uh, a different Bell Labs research facility, ended up in an office next to Ashkin and started talking and then said, no, you know, I think we can make this work. And so he was instrumental in, in really 
taking the ideas that that Ashkin and Dorkholm had had put together and you know building up a a much fancier vacuum system to to really contain these and coming up with uh, the idea of of what they dubbed um, optical molasses this uh, idea of overlapping laser beams going in in opposite directions that will slow down atoms no matter what direction they're moving in and uh, that gives you the ability to 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 really cool the atoms the atoms feel like they're in a viscous fluid thus optical molasses a very colorful term and um, and and it was Chu that that really got that that whole thing working experimentally. Um, so he was uh, he had been doing some experiments on uh, positrons and positronium in uh, in other systems, something very different. Uh, but got interested in this in this idea. And one of the the neat things, you know, Bell Labs uh, had this this very open culture at the time of. Uh, I think it's Bjorkholm who who put it that, you know, you could work on anything you wanted as long as it was world class. Right. So was, you know, whatever you wanted to study, you were you were pretty much free to study anything that seemed interesting as long as you were going to be one of the best in the world at it. And so they were they were able to to take on this, you know, this idea of laser cooling doesn't really seem like it has much to do with, you know, Bell Labs is a telecommunications company it doesn't seem directly connected to that. But at the time, they were allowed to, to do kind of whatever they wanted. And that freedom really helped launch things. Uh, something very similar at the NISTs, too, I should say. The, the National Bureau of Standards, you know, they hired Dave Wineland in Boulder. They hired Bill Phillips in, uh, in, in Gaithersburg. Uh, both of them were hired to work on other things. Uh, Wineland's job was to, to help evaluate and improve an existing cesium atomic clock. Uh, but he was told he could spend some of his time on doing these experiments with trapped ions. Um, and Phillips was hired to to do some uh, uh, electrical measurements that eventually uh, became the, the new standard for the, the volt and then the, the kilogram. Um, he was hired to work on that, but again, was told he could have some some time to do, uh, you know, his own thing and, and do these laser cooling of, of neutral atoms. Uh, and they were pretty much uh, left alone to to do. They they both cite their you know, their initial bosses as being extremely supportive of of exploring you know whatever they were they were most interested in. Uh, and later on, they both uh, particularly praised uh, Catherine Gebby, who was eventually the director of the physics laboratory at, at NIST, and and had a really good uh, line about. Um, that really captures sort of the ethos of, of that, which was she felt that her job was to, to hire good people and stay out of their way so that, uh, you know, really uh, supported uh, Wineland and Phillips and, and Jan Hall and uh, some other people to, to really explore very broadly into exciting uh, areas of research. And that's really paid off. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because that freedom giving great researchers freedom to do their work led to as you say you know nobel prize winning physics is that freedom something that we're seeing today in physics still it's certainly um you know that that still exists in a lot of places there's still the the nists are still very much run that way they they have uh you know people in the in the physics labs that are exploring 
really exotic things in, in in a lot of ways. There, there's a bit less of that now. I, the certainly the you know industrial labs like Bell Labs are are you know there's still a Bell Labs around, but it's it's a shell of what it was in the glory days when they were really uh, you know operating in kind of the infinite money limit where they could could go off and explore literally anything that they wanted to. Um, but there's, there's still a lot of that, that really the pursuit of basic fundamental science that's foundational to so many other things. Uh, but it does, it, it, it gets a lot of times, uh, sort of disparaged. People will talk about, well, you know, why are you, why are you studying that? That's so arcane and, and weird that nobody's, that's never going to be useful for anything. Uh, but in fact, a lot of the times that's the stuff that turns out to be foundational to the next leap forward, right? Where, you know, somebody goes out and figures out a way to make atoms cold. And then suddenly we've got, you know, atomic clocks that are factors of a hundred or a thousand better. And then we've got these, you know, this, these ultra cold Bose-Einstein condensates, Fermi gases that you can study these really weird exotic uh, condensed matter phenomena. Yeah. So Einstein plays a role in all this and features in the third installment of your features, which is called, well, in brief, coldest. Can you tell us a bit about that? The idea of, of uh, Bose-Einstein condensate is that there's this, this very strange phenomenon that happens uh, as you approach absolute zero. Uh, so, you know, one way to think about temperature is to, to think of, of temperature as you know, the average speed of an atom in a gas, and they're all moving in random directions and, and that sort of thing. But um, as you get colder and colder and colder, right, quantum mechanics kicks in and these things behave like waves. And the proper way to think about uh, a collection of things that behave like waves is to think of them in terms of, of discrete allowed states. And this is what happens in an atom, right? You have an atom, you have an electron that's going around the, the nucleus of the atom. It can only go around at cert in certain orbits, right? Um, very, very loosely, you can think about it as, you know, if it's going around in an orbit, the wave associated with the electron has to come back to where it started uh, when, it, when it completes an orbit. And that gets you the right I basic idea. Uh, same thing happens if you have a bunch of atoms that you're just holding in a, in a trap. Right. You can think of that as a, as a whole bunch of, of discrete states that have uh, very particular energies. So there's only a limited number of possible energies the atoms in the trap can have. So one way to think about the temperature is you can think about the temperature as the, the speeds at which the atoms are moving. Another way you can think about it is it's a distribution of atoms over all of these possible energy states in a trap. Um, and, you know, as you lower the temperature, either you're lowering the average speed or you're, you're decreasing the number of states that these, these atoms can occupy. Um, what happens is as you get really, really cold, then there's another property of the atoms that comes into play, which is this thing called spin, uh, which is an intrinsic uh, ag angular momentum that's associated with these atoms. It's purely quantum mechanical thing not predicted by any classical theory. And I'm legally required to note that they are not literally spinning. Um, but uh, the uh, atoms have this property called spin. And if the spin is uh, an integer value, an integer multiple of Planck's constant, then these atoms uh, are called bosons. They have this property that, that allows them to be in the same energy state. 
Uh, and then what happens as you get colder and colder, the number of states they can possibly occupy decreases. And then at some point, it, it reaches a, a situation where the atoms are so close to each other that they're aware of the presence of other atoms, and they all will condense into a single energy state, generally the lowest state that's available to them. Uh, and this is just because, you know, they, they realize collectively that, wait a minute, like if we were all in the lowest energy state, that would be a big drop in the, the energy of, of the gas. And we're always looking to, to, you know, go in the lowest possible state. So uh, this is a phenomenon called Bose-Einstein condensation. It's predicted by the um, Indian uh, mathematical physicist uh, Satyendra Nath Bose, uh, came up with this in thinking about a way to, to understand the spectrum of light emitted by a hot object. Um, he couldn't get his paper published uh, because he was, you know, nobody in, in India. Uh, and so he sent uh, a copy of the paper to Einstein, who he had met once before. Uh, Einstein read it and said, this is amazing. And also realized that this condensation thing would happen. Uh, and so he wrote a paper of his own and sent the both of them to Zeitschrift for Physik and said, publish these. And so this this um, got published. And this is why these uh, atoms with integer spin are called bosons. It's in honor of, of Bose. And this phenomenon is Bose-Einstein condensation because Einstein took Bose's idea and, and pointed out that, hey, you can do this thing where all of the atoms will collapse into a single state. And that's pretty pretty neat. And it, it's a purely quantum thing. It has nothing to do with interactions between the, the atoms at all. Uh, just the, the fact that they're there and their waves and those waves sort of overlap with each other um, triggers this, this process because of this quantum statistical character of the spin that they have uh, will put them into this, this low energy state. You say that they have awareness of each other, but they they're not aware of each other, are they? Because atoms don't have awareness. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, we, we have a tendency to anthropomorphize, uh, you know, microscopic inanimate objects uh, and say that, you know, they want to be in the lowest energy state and, and whatnot, um, that kind of thing. But yeah, they, they you know, that, that's how we tend to talk about it. The, the, um, the presence of these different things becomes... Uh, significant. Well, as we've said, it takes a little time for the Nobel Prize to come to people for the work that they've done. Um, are the discoveries that have been made that will win future or may win future Nobel Prize physics for this area, is, have those discoveries already happened? Uh, in this field, yeah, I think there's probably a, a, a few future ones. The the Nobel Prizes in laser cooling and uh, related fields are actually uh, on the scale of Nobel Prizes pretty quick, right? The, uh, the stuff that uh, Phillips did is... Uh, happens in the, the early 1980s, uh, around 1983 is the magnetic trapping and, and Zeman slowing. Uh, and he gets a share of the Nobel in 1997. Uh, Wineland's Nobel is in, I'm forgetting the, the year now. Uh, let me look this up. Uh, Wineland's Nobel is a, is a little later. It's in uh, 2012. Um, and the work that that he's being rewarded for starts in in 1978. Um, so that's you know that's relatively quick on the scale of Nobel prizes. 
Um, the, the Bose-Einstein condensate Nobel is in 2001. Um, and that's for, for stuff that was done only, only like six years earlier and, uh, in 1995. So that, that happened really fast on the scale of these things. Why was that one so fast? Well, it's fast on the experimental side, right? The experiments that, that did it, uh, were in 1995, that's Cornell and Wyman and, and Ketterly. Uh, and they get the Nobel in 2001. You know, the prediction of Bose-Einstein condensation that this ought to be possible is made in, in 1924. So, uh, so it's, you know, the, it's a realization of a theory that had been around for a very long time. And that makes it a little, you know, come a little bit faster. So what's the physics that's going on today that might be worthy of a Nobel Prize in the future? Uh, there are these experiments with optical lattices and optical lattice clocks where they, they uh, take atoms and they trap them in, uh, in light, you know, uh, arrangements of light beams that are lasers going in opposite directions. They interfere with each other to make a, a periodic array of bright and dark spots. Uh, and if you arrange this very cleverly, you can uh, trap atoms in the bright spots or trap atoms in the dark spots in this. Um, and uh, this turns out to be a really good way to, to make uh, atomic clocks with neutral atoms. You can hold them very, very tightly in these, so they're not moving at all, really. Uh, they stick around for a very long time, so you can interrogate them um, over, over long periods of time and make incredibly precise measurements. These are the, these are the clocks that are good to, you know, one second and more than the age of the universe. And uh, that's a uh, that's been some really spectacular work in in those fields. That is probably the kind of thing that that down the road would be uh, would be Nobel worthy. Um, there's also uh, a lot of of, of work in uh, these uh, degenerate Fermi gases is another area that is. Um, so the other category of things, you have Bose-Einstein condensation happens if you have atoms whose spin is an integer multiple of Planck's constant. Um, you also have uh, this, this, the other possibility is you can have atoms whose spin is uh, a half integer multiple. So one halves, one and a half, you know, two and a half times Planck's constant. And those particles are called fermions, and those are absolutely forbidden from being in the same energy state. And so they can be, um, they can also be cooled down. And as you cool them, you you limit the number of states they can can be in. But unlike the bosons, they fill up the states. Right, and once there's one fermion in uh, an allowed state, no other fermions can occupy that. So at some point, as the temperature gets cold enough you reach a point where all of the available states are already occupied and uh, no more atoms can go in there. Uh, and at that point, this, the system sort of, in some sense, stops cooling, right? It can't get any more compressed. It can't get any, get any smaller, can't get any colder because all of the available states are, are occupied. Um, and this is a phenomenon that's, that's closely related to what happens in metals, in, in solids that determines whether something's uh, a conductor or an insulator uh, determines is determined by this same physics, this filling up of energy states. But you can demonstrate it doesn't depend on interactions between the particles at all. You can demonstrate it with with ultra cold atoms. Uh, and this is done in 1999 by uh, at, at NIST and Boulder by uh, Debbie Jin, 
uh, who was uh, a new uh, staff scientist at, at NIST, and uh, her grad student, Brian DeMarco, um, got this lab up and running to do uh, degenerate Fermi gases and, and looking at, at potassium atoms, they were able to cool them down to the point where they stopped getting any colder. And they could show the other category of weird quantum things that happens at ultra low temperatures, which is this degenerate Fermi gas behavior where the, the, all of the available states are full and that, uh, that changes the properties of materials. Um, and so there's a, there's a huge amount of work out of that that's also uh, really interesting and um, you know probably uh, Nobel worthy someday. Uh, it's very sad that uh, Debbie Jin, who pioneered all this and and was uh, really uh, enormously influential in the field, uh, unfortunately she passed away uh, several years ago of of cancer. Uh, and so she's not around to, to get the, the Nobel or would certainly be on the short list of people that, that are expected to win one. Um, but this is a really important area because uh, these fermions, uh, the, the other kind of, part of really important particle that are fermions are electrons and electrons in a solid. And right? I said it determines this, this, uh, this filling up of states determines the properties of materials. Um, if you do this with with atoms, you can make a system that's analogous to uh, any kind of, of you know metals or superconductors or semiconductors, things like that. And you can study the behavior with atoms taking on the role of electrons. And the nice thing about that is atoms are you know thousands to millions of times heavier than electrons, so they move a lot slower. So you can watch phenomena that happen with electrons that happened far too quickly to, to be tracked directly. You can set up an analog of that where atoms are playing the roles of the electrons and watch them move around and interact and, and um, you know, study these transport properties uh, at timescales where you can, you can really follow this in real time and see how these things uh, shift around, uh, which is a, a whole new regime for studying these interesting properties of material yeah it's fascinating isn't it i mean it, it's a funny one for me because it's not something that i've thought about has come into my life really knowingly at least yeah. until i read your features and when i read that and you know when i've said to people oh, i'm going to be doing this interview about laser cooling their reaction is laser cooling that doesn't make sense and it's that yeah. little it's not even a little thing is it that peculiar nature of this means that they're going to listen to this podcast you know they are going to be interested in this because of that peculiar thing is it always something that's interested you it's i you know i i had exactly the the reaction that you described right i i got into this field because in um kind of the winter of of 1991 92 um i heard uh, claude cohen tanuji give a, a talk about uh, laser cooling. He, he came to the, the small college where I was in, an undergrad and he gave this talk. And, and uh, Cohen Tanuji is just, he is a magnificent public speaker, gives these just incredibly clear, um, you know, coherent talks uh, about things. And it, and it absolutely blew my mind. The, the idea that, you know, this, this counterintuitive notion that I've got a gas of atoms, I shine laser light on it, and suddenly I can make these these atoms move at, you know, centimeter per second, millimeter per second speeds, uh, get this down to, to millionths of a degree above absolute zero it was just just absolutely incredible. 
And then I found out that one of my professors had a lab where he was trying to set up an experiment to, to do that. And I was like, I'm in, like, I sign me up. I want to be part of this. Uh, and so it, it was, it was really cool. And, and it's exactly that counterintuitiveness that, that really drew me into the, into the field. And I was lucky enough to, to go to grad school. I worked for Bill Phillips, uh, at, at NIST in, in Gaithersburg, uh, doing laser cooling experiments for, for my PhD thesis. And so, you know, I was incredibly fortunate to be around, uh, some of these, these really exceptional people, uh, doing this, this exceptional science. And you can read much more about Chad Orzel's conversations and explorations of this topic on the Physics World website with his three features. The first, cold, how physicists learn to manipulate and move particles with laser cooling. The second, colder, how physicists beat the theoretical limit for laser cooling and laid the foundations for a quantum revolution. And the third, at the time of recording, known only and not yet published, as coldest. But by the time you're listening, or certainly soon enough, you'll be able to read that third part on physicsworld.com. Before that, settle in and read part one and part two of the Cold, Colder and Coldest trilogy. I'd like to thank Chad Orzel for joining me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. And of course, I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Physics World.